now that kids can, you know, learn so many things on their own, access information, like what is our role? There's still a, and there always will be a role for relationship in learning. It will be a core pillar always. You learn best when you are challenged and known. The known is the human part. Welcome to Humanizing Software, where we explore our ever-evolving relationship with technology and its impact on our professional and personal lives. Hear incredible stories and gain valuable insights from global industry leaders as we discuss their relationship with software and how it's developed over the course of their career. As technology continues to evolve and brings us closer together, it should enable people to do what they do best while we uncover what they do best with the help of technology. And now your host, Andrew Tall. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And welcome to episode 47 of Humanizing Software with Tailwind Business Ventures. As we have conversations with a number of global leaders that speak to their personal and professional experiences relating to not only software, but the humanization of software. How do we keep the people into the technology side of the equation? We invite for you, if you're listening live today, to please join in on the conversation. Ask questions, put in comments, let us know what you're thinking. Engage with us in the conversation. Visit our website at tailwindsw.com and follow us on our channel on YouTube. We are going live on a number of different channels right now, and we also make sure that each of the episodes that we are uh, recording are also available for people to listen into in the future as well. But we've had some fascinating guests in the past, including Paulo Vieira, James Benzile, Dapika Sangam, uh, Harsha Balur, and a number of folks that have shared with us their thoughts about this ever-changing trend of humanization of software. And we, again, invite you to engage with us, both digitally and otherwise, and let us know your thoughts. Today, I'm quite pleased to have join us somebody that's very well known and new to the community down here in Austin, hailing from originally Boston, Massachusetts, which she'll tell us in her stories, um, but just getting a chance to know in more detail, Erica Haskins. Um, Erica is an experienced educator, community builder, and social innovator. She has over 15 years of experience, specifically working with coaching entrepreneurs and startup teams, facilitating community-led design, and very importantly, overseeing the launch of over 80 education and ed tech ventures, which we're going to spend some time at. She has a couple of graduate degrees in educational leadership and is an alumni of Harvard Kennedy School Executive Education. She's a certified practitioner of the Entrepreneurial Mindset Profile Assessment and brings this expertise to bear in all of her programs, including education, program, and student development. I'm very excited to welcome Erica Haskins to join us today. Erica, good morning. How are you? Hi, Andrew. I'm doing great. How about yourself? Doing very, very well. Excited for our conversation today, and thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. As we start off, a number of our folks in, in each one of our episodes, the most important thing is to allow those folks that are listening in now or in the future to get to know a little bit about our guests. So Erica, tell us the Erica Haskins story. Big question. Big question. Wow, the Erica Haskins story. I can start wherever I want? Well, it's your story. We will fact check, but it's we'll your story. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll just start close to the beginning. 
actually don't originally hail from Boston, my origins and kind of where I grew up is in a very rural community in Indiana. So I'm from the Midwest, very small town, high school of 60 people, kind of the classic, you drive your tractor to the Friday night football game, like think all of those things, but it was, it was wonderful. Went to school, be an engineer. And that was really exciting being from the community I was from. After about three years of engineering, decided, nope, I really wanted to be a math teacher. So that's my, my first step into like the, my professional career was a math classroom, but it was a really special math classroom. So I didn't even realize it at the time, but I was joining a school that was opening its doors for the first time. So I took a job with a startup, not even knowing like <laughs> you're joining a startup, but that was honestly, the best place for me to be. So I got to grow with that school. We grew that network actually of schools from central Indiana. First expansion out of state was to Austin, Texas. It's called the Excel Center Network and expanded that then even further. I got to help expand that to like five states and Washington, DC. See about 12 schools come on the map. I think there's like 30 now, but that was awesome. And I realized like, oh, I have an itch for startups. It's very much in this education space, but I like just like getting things up and running, starting new things. And that's what brought me to Boston, where I was working with an organization and helping them develop design and then also run an accelerator program for education entrepreneurs, most of which were founding public charter schools. Some of those ventures veered off to be nonprofits or other education ventures, but a majority of them were public schools. And that was amazing work. That was just incredibly inspiring to see education entrepreneurs unlock value and meet needs in their communities and how different that looked from community to community and the schools that they wanted to see and the things and the hopes and dreams that they had for their children. I mean, I just got to be a part of all of those entrepreneurs, all of that discovery of which is very inspiring work. And so I just decided, I just wanted to take that a step further. Like what does entrepreneurship look like even beyond the education space? And how can I be a part of that journey for even more young people and especially entrepreneurs at the earliest stages that are just like, just getting started. That's where I met Three Day Startup, which is just a phenomenal organization, nonprofit operating here out of Austin, Texas, and, and had been for a while when they found me. And so worked with Three Day Startup for two years. I've now transitioned out of that role, but I'm super inspired by the team and all the work that they're going to continue to do. Three Day Startup really sees themselves as an entrepreneurship education organization, serving young people 16 to 24, and particularly young people that don't see themselves represented in entrepreneurial ecosystems all the time. So young women, young people of color, students that are first generation college students, just wanting them to have the experience and the knowledge and the skills and networks to navigate their entrepreneurial journeys and be successful in, in what they pursue. So that's the work of Three Day Startup. And that was beautiful. And it's really just brought me here where I am today is doing my own thing as a founder, co-founding a company, Intrepid, and also just working to expand entrepreneurship education opportunities wherever I can. Excellent. A number of different things. And I do remember your Midwestern roots in our first conversation, which I think is important because it's different for me as we've had the blessing of talking to folks both domestically and internationally. And the different culture sets that are important where you talk about Midwestern values, Southern values, East Coast, West Coast, Left Coast, Right Coast, whatever you want to, and the different perspectives that that brings from mm -hmm. folks. Mm -hmm. Starting off with, 
Indiana, Boston, now Austin. And we may or may not have had some conversation right beforehand about you enjoying the Texas winters, so to speak, where we'll be somewhere in the 80s today in March. I think there's, um, what is the the old adage in Texas? We've got two different seasons, hot and the two days that we get rain or snow or ice in February. So that's kind of that. I'd be curious though, to to understand a little bit more with your background Mm -hmm. coming from Indiana, experiencing everything doing a startup before you knew a startup was a startup on the educational side, moving to Boston and now coming to Austin. How has that formulated your, your journey of life, what you've learned, what you've been able to experience? Great question. So I'll talk about the first leap. Well, the first leap was actually probably from the farm to Indianapolis. That's still like a very big, from the farm to the city. Driving the tractor. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Just a, a big jump. I, really love my roots roots of just like a kid from the farm and also my dad's a small town banker and the currency in small towns is just relationships and care and that's a deep part of who I am and how I go about my relationships and also my work in a lot of ways the way I think I can unlock value but but just seeing as like really just like the density of population going up knowing that that currency is just different or that relational capital is harder to build and manage. So that was tough just jumping from like the Midwest to Boston. Speed of relationships and speed of just personal transactions is is faster. So that was an adjustment. But also I thought the culture in Boston around new ideas and new thinking and cutting edge thinking was, that was very exciting to me as somebody that has a propensity for wanting to do that, to like challenge the status quo, do something new and different. There were people there in Boston that would engage like that. And so intellectually, that was really exciting for me. And that's why Austin, now coming to Austin, is such a special city and place for me to be specifically because I see it being at the nexus of those two cultural experiences. Like Austin is a place where people care and have care for relationships and collaboration the way that I felt in the Midwest. And also you can sit down with really smart, bright people that want to challenge the status quo, want to, you know, start new things. They have ideas they want to share. They want to get people excited about it. People experience both of those things in the the same place is really, really special to me. That's why I like it. You've touched on several different things that are very near and dear to my heart, not the least of which, of course, is Austin. I am a, I think the nomenclature is retired military brat. Dad was in the Air Force and did the every three to four years thing and have literally lived from Florida to Alaska and places in between and visited a number, a couple of dozen, I think three dozen different countries as well. That unique experience of having to travel amongst different places and you going from the small town and I'm going to come back to the relationship piece where the currency, as your dad as a small town banker, was was the importance of that relationship, which is another thing that hits very much so home to me, is incredibly important. The going from small town to Indianapolis to Boston and to Austin, it's interesting because you're getting to understand, and obviously it's had an impact on who you are and those things that are important to you. At Tailwind, we have, and part of the reason we're doing this exact live cast on humanizing software is if you 
look at our tagline from a Tailwind perspective, it is not software as a service because everybody's heard of software as a service, infrastructure or platform as a service. That's been around for quite some time. But we're reintroducing the power of the relationship where we call it and we've trademarked it software as a relationship, putting in this person to person contact to really not only be throwing bodies, throwing different systems or processes at something, but actually genuinely putting, as you had said, some smart, talented, collaborative people together to work towards uh, solving a particular problem. I've said it in, I guarantee at least half of our previous live casts, my favorite four words are, how can I help? And that is something that I think is very, very prevalent in Austin. I'm not going to say it's unique to Austin because there's a lot of other places that do that, but the sense of collaboration, the sense of uniqueness and this attitude of, I'd really like to understand what you're working on, Erica, so I can figure out how to help you is something that is incredibly important. And, and I want to circle back around to that. Obviously, it sounds like your dad was a pretty impactful figure in your life taught you the power of the relationship and how important it was in a small town. Let's pull on that thread a little bit about the, the impact of your family and what they uh, taught you early on, those values and belief sets that you have now. Sure. Yeah. Both my mom and dad, really special folks and watching them and how they conducted themselves both personally and also their professional journeys, I think is very reflected in me and, and kind of in my journey. And I, I honor that so much. So dad, small town banker, also started his career as a math teacher. <laughs> also thought he was going to be an engineer. Wow, we're seeing a lot of similarities here. I just learned so much. Like first, like when you're a kid, it's just annoying that you can't go out to, out to eat anywhere. And like somebody doesn't approach the table because they know your dad, because he's the one loan officer in like three county area. Like, Sometimes it was like, again, like, uh, again, like everybody's always just knows my dad. But as I grew up and got more mature, like I understood like why that was so special, how much trust and like personalization there was in what was a business relationship. My dad was really able to make it like a personal relationship. A lot of that is agricultural banking and farmers are the business of farming is also an identity. And I think my dad saw that. And so like, I think that that, that played into like his business relationships. And then my mom was just a hustler. She was a nurse and she worked hard. And to grow up with a woman that worked full time, that was sometimes odd hours, but then was also at every basketball game, at every like debate club thing, award ceremony, had the school snacks on the day like it was your birthday. Man, I don't know how she did it all, but she did. <laughs> and she just was a proof point that like, yes, you can be an amazing mother and have a full time career. Yeah, those are the people that made me. <laughs> It's, it's interesting. And I love that because we talk a lot about the foundations of where, um, how somebody becomes who they are. And I talk regularly about the fact that Tailwind is, we're a family, we're based off relationship. It is all about the relationship and it is incredibly important to me. It is part of my family. And because I'm trying to stop using the word, but because everything before that doesn't, uh, doesn't kick into place, but and I fully well recognize that Tailwind is what I do. It is not who I am. Yeah. Who I am is something that my parents, and we do have a similar journey on that, Erica, my mother and my father are both absolutely iconic, amazing individuals in my life and have largely sh shaped uh, a tremendous amount of who I am. 
the foundation, the values, the, the belief set, the keeping those things that are important, important to you is something that I try and uh, don't blur the lines between uh, personal and professional. There are no lines. It is literally who I want to be on my personal life is who I plan to be professionally. And I'm not defined by either. It's defined by hopefully doing the right thing for what the man upstairs has put me on this planet to do. So that's very, very, very important uh, to me. And it sounds like you have similar traits and background as it pertains to who Erica is. So let's talk a little bit and shift gears on the professional side. So we now have a engineering student, aspiring math teacher, educational teacher. So what was the last piece? Very good math teacher. An excellent math teacher. I will send you several problems that I still to this day cannot figure out, but that's a separate conversation. An excellent math teacher. But now on the entrepreneurial side, you've launched 80 different or up to 80 or more educational or ed tech ventures mm -hmm. in terms of some of the things that you have been a part of. So those ventures are more overseen. So think portfolio support and also entrepreneurship acceleration and coaching. And those took the form, kind of like I was saying earlier, of a majority of them were public schools. So the, the launch of a new innovative elementary school in Albuquerque, New Mexico, or, or a middle school that started in the fourth grade instead of the sixth grade in the Bronx, uh, New York. Some of those became nonprofit entities instead of public schools and, and became just like educational programs. Some of them ultimately became education tech products, which is really cool. Also, I had one short stint, and I actually was a part of this team for a bit, uh, a startup to kind of reinvent higher education. And there's a lot of activity in that space right now. Um, so it was really neat to be a part of that for a few months. Yeah, that is where I have dabbled. And then also just a, a part of that journey was opening two schools or being the founding, like the founder of two schools of the first network that I joined. So one in Richmond, Indiana, and then another one in Indianapolis. Excellent. As you have spent a, a good portion of your uh, professional life on the educational side, we've seen a lot of change on the educational side as it pertains to technology, both hardware and software. Uh, COVID obviously introduced massive change, not only in terms of how we educate, how we also fundamentally communicate as well. I'd be curious to get your take on how you've seen different trends from a technological perspective morph and change, not only over the last three years, because COVID obviously upended everything, but really over the last three, five, eight, 10, 12 years. What have you seen kind of that path of technological adoption and the craziness of the way things used to be taught versus the way things are taught now? Well, first, I'll say I don't think public education is moving fast enough in this area, even though it's moving. It has been really cool to observe, like, just having been in a setting where like having a classroom and not even having a computer for every student in that classroom and kind of having to like rotate things around to now you walk into schools like they are built so that every kid could access like one-to-one -one, a laptop at any point in time, right? So it's been cool to just like watch the, just the physical infrastructure, like that evolution. Ultimately, I think kids are, are walking around like 
knowing how to navigate technology and information better than the schools that they're walking into. So it's like, we need to play a game of catch up. But also I think that that, what that forces teachers and education systems to do is just say like, now that kids can, you know, learn so many things on their own, access information, like what is our role? There's still a, and there always will be a role for relationship in learning. It will be a core pillar always. You learn best when you are challenged and known. The known is the human part. So it's not like computers are gonna replace teachers, but, but what does the role of the teacher look like? Teacher as facilitator, teacher as guide, because it, we have an information rich world. It is not this like imparting of knowledge. It's a facilitation, so. So you just brought up an excellent point and you knew we were gonna go there. Computers aren't going to replace teachers. We have this little thing that you and everybody else may have heard of over the last few weeks, this little AI component. Oh, I need to do more reading on this. I should have read about this. Chat GPT, or if you look at it, China's got Baidu, Google's got Bard. Everybody's playing this game with OpenAI. Uh, I say OpenAI is Microsoft on the uh, on ChatGPT, and I've played with it a little bit. We've talked about it here at Tailwind. We're certainly keeping up with the trends and uh, being quite well aware of what that looks like. You can literally ask a question about put together a press release, write a white paper, draw me a picture or one that I saw with a group of CEOs with some credit unions that I was on where they said, I'm in a relationship, I want to be single, chat GPT, write me a breakup letter, which you're kind of going, what? There's something fundamentally wrong with that. However, it's here, it's happening. A lot of people are talking about it. It's the fastest technology to go from zero to a hundred million users in the history of the planet. What is your take on teaching versus teachers that are John or Jane Doe versus teaching versus artificial intelligence, which is not got that humanized concept or component of it? Oh, I veer human every day. Like I'm a huge softie. <laughs> I veer human every day because I think learning happens through relationships but I also think everyone that's working in education right now should be like, hmm, there's this new thing. And how do we exist together? And how do we just use it so that children learn more, are better off, and do great things with their lives? Like, what is its role? We can't ignore it. Like, it's here. <laughs> what, what is this role going to be? Yeah, it, it's interesting because I know after the, and it happens all, all too often, yet again, another school shooting, and in this case with Michigan State University, a few weeks back, and obviously the horrific aspect of every bit of that, which just, again, seems to happen far, far, far too often. Chat GPT somehow got into the conversation there, where in this case, Vanderbilt University had issued a statement to their students about, we're here to protect your safety, et cetera. Well, it was quickly determined that, and I'm sure this went from somebody high up that said, we need to go ahead and take care of this, and it whittled its way down through, and somebody decided to hit the easy button and go ahead and create a statement from ChatGPT that was used verbatim to send out to the entire student body. It seemed a bit off kilter. They were called out on it, and of course, immediately found out that yes, somebody had actually utilized the tool to do that, and it was not done in the best taste, and 
probably could have or should have needed to be a little bit different on a several different fronts. There's that opportunity where there's this awesome power of leveraging the collective knowledge of trillions of images, words, papers, data sets that exist versus original words, which you and I are creating an original relationship-based conversation that then will be assimilated into the mothership because it will be publicly available. As we mark this moment in time of the way things used to be with John or Jane Doe leaning over the desk and pointing out to Johnny or Jimmy or Jane that this is the way that you're actually supposed to learn math and demonstrate that versus somebody speaking into a device and been given the answer, which may or may not be correct, very curious as to what we might be in danger of losing as that is literally happening every day right now. I'm thinking on this one. Well, just in that example that you shared, and this, this really just ties to entrepreneurship, it's just the process of like experiencing that in life, just like essays, the, the, the process of writing is recursive such are many things in our lives. And yes, we first experience that with three paragraph essays, or we first experience it in solving our first linear equation or struggling to do that. But that is a, a more, a life lesson that I think it's, it just plays itself over and over. I think that that would be the biggest loss is that we've created tools that just give us the answer, give us the product so fast that then we don't learn that lesson. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, and, and to build on what you just said, Erica, I, I distinctly remember, and I think everybody, and we're, we're talking along the lines of education, I hope at least, and I've talked to a lot of folks about this, I hope that everybody has had that one or more teacher that has had a huge impact, whether it was in their elementary school years, their middle school, or even high school or post-high school graduate years, or university abroad, as people like to say, um, or utilize they have that one teacher that had a immeasurable impact on their lives of either being there for them, challenging them in some way, putting something in front of them that allows them to be a better version of themselves or to switch to have a little bit more focus, or frankly, just to believe in them that who they are as a person is valuable to others and that they can do something. That concept is something that, and, and for me, uh, just plain and simple, it was Betty McDonald, my ninth grade up in Alaska, AP world history teacher who has since passed away, had the most amazingly infectious, awesome laugh of you could hear her coming down the hallway. And oh, by the way, if you were not on your game she sensed it, she knew it, and you were toast. Very first time, all the way through eighth grade, I had no problem with school. School was easy, learning, got it, situated, etc. She slaps down on one of our first days of class. I'm a freshman doing all the freshman thing in high school, trying to figure out which locker I'm going to get stuffed into and all the fun stuff associated with that. And she slaps down a blue book exam. And for those of you on the younger side of the equation, which we have quite a few um, that ultimately listen in, you'll understand. I'll explain it. Blue book that you get in college or used to, 
where you open it up and it's basically a small notebook and you're given an essay topic and you write the blue book until you're finished, at whether it's 30 minutes or three hours. And it's usually on the immediate and you're supposed to demonstrate your knowledge and critical thinking associated with the task. Well, Mrs. McDonald puts that in front of me. She says, this is what you guys are going to see in four years. I'm putting it in front of you now. This is the way things are going to be. I can write. I got this. Go through, go through, turn it in. <laughs> that wasn't so hard. Fairly certain <laughs> outside of handwriting or penmanship, when that used to be a thing, I know I'm dating myself, where I regularly came as close to an F as humanly possible when I was a young kid, which is why I type everything. That was the only assignment in my later on school years that I got a D plus. And I looked at it and I literally had the naivety and frankly, stupidity to go up and say, this can't be right. And Mrs. McDonald sat me down and said, Andrew, and I went by Andy back then in the day, you essentially dialed this in. And I'm looking at her. I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, you did. Tell me that you didn't because, and then she listed off a number of reasons, every single one of them that was correct <laughs> about how I had in essence dialed it in. She goes, you're not going to dial it in in my class. You're not going to dial it in in life. You need to focus. I'm going to teach you critical thinking. I'm going to teach you critical writing. I'm going to teach you the way to be critical of yourself and how you're going to approach life. And that literally, that happened my freshman year one or two weeks in, probably one weekend, and Betty Mac, as she went, will have and has forever impacted my life. It's that type of a relationship. Had I not had Betty McDonald in my life to literally knock me off of this self-imposed pedestal of, I've got this. No, I did not. I could be better. I could learn better. I could challenge myself in so many different ways. I am excited and yet terrified that mm -hmm. artificial intelligence is going to miss that capability of providing the Betty McDonald, you ain't all that <laughs> for people that will need it, as well as those who may not have it, but need to hear from another human being that can empathize and sympathize with them that you've got this. So I know I just went on there on a little bit of a tangent, but the story would love to get your comments and thoughts on that, Erica. No, I think that that's a great example. And I'm on the other side of that, I think. So if I had to share like my one person story, Mr. LeBeau, he was a, my, I actually had him, I don't know why he did this. I had him every single year, four years in a row for my math trajectory. He just kept taking like the next thing up. Again, also small school, like teachers teach everything. But this is what why Mr. LeBeau was special. So I just quite frankly, like wasn't very challenged. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't very challenged in school, was able to keep it together behaviorally enough, just a little bit fidgety. But this is what Mr. LeBeau did that was really special and changed my life. He did two things. He was at every girl's basketball game, every girl's volleyball game, boys too. He just went to everybody's sporting stuff. He was the teacher who was there. And I was the world's most mediocre athlete by far. <laughs> most mediocre, like in the sports, but just like winning the hustle award every year, year over year. That was Erica. I was also on the math team though, just because like, we got to put together a math team. Like who are the top five kids? Okay, great. And the year that I did like the state math competition for calculus, I won. 
and Mr. LeBeau was the coach, that man was a soft-spoken, very gentle figure, yelled louder than I had ever heard him yell at any sporting event. And it's funny because I also in the moment was like, what? What's, look at Mr. LeBeau, guys. But now removed, that was his signal to me of like, you are a woman. You just won a math competition. Go do hard things. Go do things in spaces where nobody looks like you. That started a trajectory. Academics aside, like, did I need a lot of extra help on my calculus homework? No, but I needed Mr. LeBeau to do that for me to like pursue engineering. Also want to go into, you know, mathematics as an education career. That was a huge impact for me. I love that we both have had the blessing. And to me, it was absolutely a blessing. It wasn't when I got that first D plus back and I was like, oh no, you did not do just do that to me. And afterwards realizing that yes, she did. And it was one of the best things to have ever, literally ever happened to me to literally give me and shift, not just shift, radically reset my perspective on the way things had to or could be. And it's interesting because it goes back to the relationship side. And back then, back in the day, yes, I'm old. We've had that conversation on numerous live casts. Back in the day, we were given blue books and we were given pencils, this cool little device that I have still on my desk, um, along with pins. And yes, I still have a smartphone and a whole bunch of other stuff, but I still utilize the pencil quite a bit, even though I can't read my own writing most of the time, I still at least attempt to not use that lost art. Now we have cool software and hardware that's come in. And if I look from my computer, I have now a different pin that I could use that is part of my laptop that I could write on the screen and actually interact directly on a variety of different means of technology. We are every day radically changing how we interact with each other, with the real world. Technology is pervasive. Technology is our business. Obviously, that's what we do is we build custom code to make little zeros and ones enable automation, enable something to happen more efficiently, enable things to happen faster, enable a, a customer experience to be a lot more seamless. Your dad's way of offering a loan back when you were growing up on a handshake is now predominantly done via a device where it's click, 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 okay. And there could be very little human interaction that's involved in that. Let's talk about that shift, Erica, and especially as it pertains to the impact of software on how the way you used to do stuff versus the way we now do stuff. What have you seen in the ed tech space specific to the journey of software transforming folks? From an ed tech perspective, I think it went gamified learning started and still can exist as just a means to, for quick recall. So think like, think about how kids, students just recall information very quickly, or even just presenting things. I'm trying to think of examples, like presenting a math problem that you're going to do on the paper, but you're going to input like into some type of a game. It's gone from that into being platforms in which children 
really build and like synthesize information together to build new things or to demonstrate that they've learned something or can construct something from their learning. And that's exciting because that's, that is like the future of learning. Like that's what you do in the real world. <laughs> you don't just recall uh, information, you know, that you, you've stored away. So that's good. And I'm really excited to see where that continues to go. Well, and, and from our side, so part of what we do and have an impact with on a number of different fronts is uh, the this humanizing software is obviously the title of what we're doing from a livecast perspective. But there's three words that are the subtitle, which in many cases are even more important. And we've touched on it in a couple of different ways. Both of us have from your learning, from your experiences, and from what we're saying. When you see the words people-driven tech, what comes to mind? What does that mean, people-driven tech, in your mind, Erica? I think, I mean, I immediately go to the work of three-day startup, and I think about that work, and I think about those young people. And what we talked about as a team and so much of why we did the work that we did was when when innovation and technology is inclusive of all people, we're solving problems in a way that's inclusive of all people. Meaning we need a diverse set of people developing tech and then using tech to solve problems for the whole world. And so, and unlocking the value, inclusive innovation just unlocks incredible value. We're just missing opportunities every day when we don't have diverse people in technology. It would Technology as a sector isn't diverse enough. And then entrepreneurship as a sector and innovation isn't diverse enough. It's just so much opportunity and value is left on the table. All, all of that comes to mind when, when I hear people-driven tech. is like, who's doing the building? From what perspective are they doing the building? And because of that, who and what type of value are they unlocking? So what I hear you saying is, what I'm hearing is the people aspect of that needs to not just be one type or set or character set or whatever of people. Yeah. The more that we're able to leverage the talents and diverse skill sets of folks. And when I say folks, folks from different backgrounds, different geographies, whatever the makeup is, the collective is significantly better than having a same group of very similarly minded or similarly background, educational, geographical, all single white males that are between the ages of 25 and 26 years old or 50 and 51 years old or whatever else that may be, that's going to get you something. But when you are able to broaden and open up the blinds associated with having different sets of people from different backgrounds that come in and, and, and provide their unique life experiences that's where the magic at least has the opportunity to happen. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, you start to solve more and different types of problems. Just think like, who are going to be the pioneers in femtech? Hmm, something we haven't talked about. Femtech, I love it. Tell me more. Have me back for episode 54. <laughs> like femtech is a, a huge, I mean, like it's growing. This is one of my news alerts is femtech. It's one of my, my favorite verticals to just, you know, fall down rabbit hole right now. But femtech will be led by women for women, right? So that's just one of so many examples of people-driven tech is that women will unlock the value. Women will solve problems there with diverse teams, for sure. That's just, uh, yeah, one of so many examples I think that we could bring forward. 
So I love this, I, and I cannot believe this is the first time I've heard it, especially given the fact that I've the father of two girls who have been brought up more than often than not on these uh, live casts. And my eldest, Lauren, is working with IBM. So you can guarantee that she's going to hear sometime in the next day or so about this concept of femtech. And what I love is that she is part of a very diverse team at IBM, which of course, 300,000 people spread out all over the planet and made up of an incredibly diverse workforce of men and women and people from literally every walk of life, every educational background, every ge geographical background for this concept of enabling technology to make things better. I'm proud, very, very proud that from a Tailwind team's perspective, we've got several hundred folks that I happen to be, we'll just call it over 50 white male, I am in the absolute extreme minority in my own company where there's five or six of us out of the 200 plus. I haven't done a count, don't need to do a count. I just know that we've got folks that are here in the States, folks that are in Portugal, folks that are in Sri Lanka, folks that are all over Brazil, men and women that are bringing to bear their technical talents to solve problems. And the more diverse, the more capable, the more set of training and building and collaborating, to coin a phrase that you mentioned at the very beginning, the better off we are all going to be throughout that entire piece. So that's awesome. And I know that we're also getting close to the top of the hour, but last question of the day for you, Erica, especially as you are going through a little bit of, not going through, you're literally in transition to this new cool startup that is coming about. Tell us a little bit about chapter next for Erica. Oh, a chapter next for Erica. Definitely pouring my heart and soul into Intrepid, which is something I'm really passionate about and working with co-founders that I care about a lot. Also, classic entrepreneur mode, working on a stealth project that hopefully I can talk about more in the future, but will be very much in line with the work that I did at Three Day Startup in supporting underestimated, underrepresented founders. So that's a little bit on the side. Yeah, and just open to other cool opportunities and things that come my way, including fostering dogs. That's a, a thing I spend a lot of time on. <laughs> I, I remember we actually had that conversation. So you said stealth. It just begs that I have to see if I can poke and prod a little bit. Understand that things need to be kept under wraps. Can you tell us a little bit about any particular area that might be specific to that? It might require raising a lot of money, which what doesn't? <laughs> And yeah, it might require raising a lot of money. So, <laughs> so a lot of money to do something under stealth. What are you, the U.S. government? What is no. this? <laughs> no, understood. All right. Well, it will definitely be supporting the next generation of women, young women entrepreneurs, and then founders that identify as Black or Indigenous people of color. Excellent. That sounds like a very worthy cause. And I'm going to ask for your commitment to make sure that I and we, your audience, are kept in, in the loop when I it comes excellent, from stealth into full-on regular public mode. I love it. So, Erica, thank you a thousand times over for joining us in today's Humanizing Software, episode 49. So blessed to be able to have you on the conversation and talk on not only your background, but a little bit about kind of where things are going, your transition relative to three-day startup to Intrepid and where that's going to take us, leaving us with a little teasing of what really is that going to be. So I can certainly appreciate that on a number of fronts, but thank you a ton for joining us today. 
Well, thank you for having me. Love the conversation. And just thank you also for just having the conversation about people-driven tech. I think it's really neat. Excellent. Thank you. And as we wrap up today's episode, again, we invite you to please join the conversation. Comment on the episode today. Share with us your thoughts. Visit our website at tailwindsw.com. The leaders that I mentioned and many, many others that have provided their concepts, their thoughts of where they want to go and where they think technology is headed. And uh, next week, extremely excited to have Joe Gleinsner from GCS Technologies join us as we continue the conversations. So as we wrap up today, we want to wish everybody a very, very good morning, a good afternoon, and good evening. Have a fantastic rest of your week. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Humanizing Software with Andrew Tall. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.